Hello, everyone, and welcome to the August 31st edition of WorkCom Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Folson, attorney with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeal affirmed the termination of an injured LAPD officer. Here's what happened in the unpublished case of Garola versus the City of Los Angeles. On October 5 or 6, 2011, Richard Garola, a peace officer with the City of Los Angeles, suffered a back spasm, which was a flare-up of a prior work-related injury. He scheduled an appointment with Dr. Simon Lavi, who had treated the initial injury but could not get an appointment earlier than October 11. Dr. Levy's office, which had previously backdated medical notes for Garola, assured him he would receive injured-on-duty pay, notwithstanding the delay in seeing the doctor. What followed then was numerous communications between Garola and the LAPD about his status and the documentation that was needed from his doctors. Finally, Garola was served with a personal complaint and notice of relief from duty and proposed removal, suspension, or demotion, charging him with one count of being absent from work without leave and one count of providing false statements during the investigation into his absence. There was conflicting testimony from seven witnesses on the Board of Rights hearing. Ultimately, the Board of Rights found Garola guilty of count one and not guilty of count two, and he was terminated from employment. He appealed, and the Court of Appeal affirmed the termination. In a review of an administrative order, the determination of the penalty by the administrative body will not be disturbed unless there has been an abuse of its discretion. In considering whether an agency abused its discretion, the overriding consideration is the extent to which the employee's conduct resulted in or, if repeated, is likely to result in harm to the public service. Other relevant factors include the circumstances surrounding the misconduct and the likelihood of its recurrence. Using this standard, the Court of Appeal concluded that although the penalty of termination was harsh, The board properly found that public service was compromised by Garola's two-month absence from work without leave. In addition, the evidence showed Garola's actions were consistent with a pattern of improperly taking extended absences from work. A workers' compensation judge issued an order in 2013 for costs and sanctions against Professional Lean Services, Inc., in the underlying case of Trin v. Zhang Long, USE, Incorporated. It was ordered to pay defendants' costs and attorney fees in the amount of $2,355, along with a separate court sanction to the administrative director of $1,000. The sanctions were imposed for PLS's bad faith, and frivolous conduct in pursuing a lien case when it did not offer evidence at the trial adequate to meet its initial burden of proof. Neither PLS nor its representative, Mike Traw, appealed the 2013 sanction order, and it is now final and binding for all purposes. 
The appeals board notified PLS in October 2013 that payment of the $1,000 court sanction was expected within 10 days and further advised that failure to pay the sanction was grounds for suspending the privilege of appearing before the WCAB. PLS replied that it was petitioning for reconsideration, but indeed that was not the case. The defendant also made unsuccessful efforts to recover the costs and attorney's fees awarded as part of the sanction order. Thus, the N. Bank panel concluded in an order this August that PLS and Mr. Tra were willfully disobeying the 2013 sanction order. Labor Code Section 4907 provides for suspension of the privilege of appearing before the WCAB for failure to pay final orders of sanctions, attorney's fees, or costs. The failure to comply with an order or regulation of the WCAB, including an order to pay a sanction, is an interference with the judicial process. For this reason, the unbanked decision ordered that the Appeals Board intends to suspend the privilege of Professional Lean Services Incorporated and Mike Traw of appearing before the WCAB for 90 days unless good cause is shown why the suspensions should not be imposed. And now our fraud report. The allegations in the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach criminal and civil litigation claims that fake hardware has been implanted in the spines of hundreds of victims. These allegations raise questions about surgeries in general. For example, it is now common to have hip or knee implants or stents placed in an artery. Yet, does anyone know who manufactured the surgical, surgical part, why that part was selected over any other part, what was the manufacturer's warranty, or if that was the best choice at the time it was made? Or was it chosen because of kickbacks or other reasons? Consumers spend hours choosing the latest flat panel TV, but essentially zero time learning about a costly surgical part before it is implanted. Yet recent news continues to provoke questions about how surgeons select surgical products. For example, this week 55-year-old Dr. Paul Singh of Tehachapi pleaded guilty to mail fraud for a scheme to defraud his patients and their insurers by implanting and billing for unapproved intrauterine devices. The FDA has approved only one IUD that uses copper as its active ingredient known as the Paragard T380A. This approved device is sold only by its manufacturer and not available on third-party websites. The insertion of a non-FDA-approved copper IUD risks a patient's safety. Court documents claim that Dr. Singh bought unapproved IUDs on the internet but fraudulently billed his patients and their insurers as if he had inserted the FDA-approved device. This occurred without the permission or consent of his patients. Singh was sent multiple bulletins and newsletters warning against the use of unapproved IUDs. He was also warned that products sold by online pharmacies were not 
identical to the Paragard T380A and had not been approved as safe and effective by the FDA. In spite of the warnings, Singh purchased unapproved IUDs from online retailers and implanted them in numerous patients. In 2010, agents from the FDA confronted Singh about his history of implanting unapproved IUDs and he agreed to stop implanting them. But using a search warrant in 2012, agents learned that despite his agreement, he had continued to implant unapproved IUDs in his patients. Singh profited by fraudulently billing his patients and their insurers for the higher costs of approved devices. Singh is scheduled to be sentenced on November 23rd. He faces a maximum statutory penalty of 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine. His case, the Pacific Hospital of Long Beach case, and others should provide incentive for claims administrators to carefully scrutinize the authenticity of surgical implantables. The owner and operator of three medical clinics located in Los Angeles pleaded guilty last week to submitting more than $4.5 million in fraudulent claims to Medicare. 48-year-old Hovick Simidian of Los Angeles pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit health care fraud. His sentencing has been scheduled for November 16. Simidian owned and operated three medical clinics that were located in the Los Angeles area, Columbia Medical Group, Inc., Life Care Medical Clinic, and Safe Health Medical Clinic, all in the same office building. Simidian admitted that he and his co-conspirators paid cash kickbacks to patient recruiters who brought Medicare beneficiaries to the clinics. He also admitted that he and his co-conspirators billed Medicare for lab tests and other services that either were not medically necessary or were not actually provided. To support the bills, he and others created false documentation reflecting that the services had been provided. And in regulatory news, a new CWCI update report takes a look at California workers' compensation medical and indemnity loss trends from 2002 through 2014. The data shows that the average amount paid on indemnity claims at 12 months post-injury for medical benefits, excluding medical management and medical cost containment, increased by over 30%. The average medical payments on indemnity claims registered a brief decline back in 2011 before climbing back up again over the next two years. Given the timing of the implementation of SB 863, the recent results suggest that reforms did have an immediate effect on the cost of medical services rendered during the initial period following the injury. But, the ultimate impact of the reforms on longer-term treatment costs remains to be seen. The medical management, medical cost containment expenses triggered by reforms skyrocketed over the same time period with a net increase of 240.7% since 2002. There was an immediate decline in average TD payments after the implementations of the 104-week cap in April 2004. But by 2005, average TD payments at 24 months had already started trending up again, 
And by 2006, average first-year payments were also up sharply. By 2008, the 24-month TD benefit surpassed the pre-reform 2004 level, and by 2009, average first-year payments exceeded the pre-SB899 amount. There was also a net increase of 152% in the average amount paid for first-year medical legal reports between 2002 and 2013. Thus, the study confirmed a relentless overall increase in all costs for the last decade. Multi-line insurer GEICO has agreed to pay $6 million and implement several changes to their business practices as part of a settlement with the California Department of Insurance. The settlement stems from allegations that GEICO's online premium quoting system was discriminatory and misleading to consumers. The Consumer Federation of California discovered the insurer misrepresented a $100,000-$300,000 limit quote as being a lowest limits quote when in fact it was not. The Consumer Federation claimed to the Department of Insurance that these higher policy limits were only quoted to certain consumers based on their education level, occupation, and gender. California law requires insurance to offer minimum policy limits of $15,000 to $30,000, even though they may quote higher policies thereafter. GEICO's online premium quoting system was inaccurately describing quotes for higher limits as the lowest limits. Insurance Commissioner Dave Jones issued an order approving the settlement. The insurer has also agreed to submit to twice-yearly audits of their website for the next three years to ensure they are complying with the law. Since the 1990s, the popularity of online workers' compensation quotation programs has grown for reasons beyond simple convenience. This growth demonstrates that Quoting and binding entirely online has clear advantages for the insured, agent, and underwriter. Online workers' compensation programs are excellent for addressing the insurance needs of certain types of businesses such as small to mid-sized employers with standalone coverage. This typically means manufacturers, artisan contractors, service industry risks, and others that can be easily pre-qualified through carrier-specific underwriting rules. Agents and brokers increasingly accustomed to always available online platforms have developed high expectations for the speed of quoting and binding. Speed benefits everyone. Faster quoting frees up underwriters to focus on servicing while giving agents more time to focus on generating new business. With online portals, agents don't need to submit paperwork and wait for a desk underwriter to approve it. Instead, they enter information and quickly get a quote, sometimes instantly. When they receive the quote, they also receive in real time the documents needed to present the quote, such as the rating worksheet details and the Accord application. They have the option to bind the account, giving them the ability to quickly move on to the next proposal. This is the closest agents can get to one-stop shopping with everything handled through the internet portal. 
Carriers, internet workers' compensation programs have predefined underwriting rules built in. Once the agents understand those rules, they can significantly reduce the time they spend trying to pre-qualify accounts. They understand which accounts would not usually pre-qualify. For underwriters, internet workers' compensation programs allow access to an enormous amount of data. That's because data can be captured through online submissions. This data allows underwriters to use analytics to confirm they are attracting the right risks while getting the underwriting results they expect. Using analytics to determine specific underwriting appetite is a critical part of the internet process. There are large amounts of data stored within most internet programs that can be used not only to determine missed opportunities, but also to identify areas that need improvement. And in medical news, a new study published in the Annals of Internal Medicine says that spinal epidural steroid injections provide only brief relief from the ruptured disc pain. And the injections offer no significant relief for pain related to narrowing of the spaces around the spinal cord. Some earlier studies have reached similar conclusions, but others have shown some benefit. Meanwhile, the use of epidural steroid injections has been increasing in the face of contradictory guidelines for physicians. To clarify this confusing situation, researchers sorted through the evidence from 63 published reports about the use of epidural steroid injections for low back pain. The study concluded that epidural corticosteroid injections are perceived as being more effective than they are. In the long term, the effects of injecting steroids epidurally were no better than the effects of a placebo, and there was no reduction in the need for surgery. It did not seem to matter what specific injection technique or which particular steroid was used. The new analysis, however, seems unlikely to settle any controversies. A specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago said that the studies available for analysis were of low quality. Hence, the conclusions cannot be applied to the realistic day-to-day practice of spine medicine. He added that the goal of epidural steroid injection is not for long-term cure, but rather to improve symptoms in order to allow restoration of sleep, quality of life, and tolerance of physical therapy. The CEO and chairman of the board of the American Society of Interventional Pain Physicians was also skeptical of the new study. He said that over a million people receive epidural injections either with steroids or with local anesthetic alone per year and at least 60% of them receive significant relief. Also, a pain specialist at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland, said he does not think we should categorically discontinue epidural steroid injections for either of these conditions. But we need to limit their use to those people who are most likely to benefit and to only repeat them if patients obtain clearly defined improvements in function and quality of life. Otherwise, the cost and risks may outweigh the benefits. 
And that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkCop Academy with your podcast software. Again, I'm Renee Foles, an attorney with Floyd's Garden Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.